There can't be many Bible verses taken out of context more often than the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. It's a verse often quoted in relation to funerals and to the death of a loved one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But I don't think it takes too much reflection to realise that there are, are big problems with quoting this verse in relation to death and the mourning that comes with it. Yes, in a sense, death is, is in a sense, because death is a result of sin, uh, that there will, there will be comfort for God's people who are, will one day no longer be oppressed by this last enemy. But if simply to mourn was to be blessed, then Jesus would be saying that almost everyone on earth would be blessed because almost everyone on earth will mourn at some time in their lives. But does that really fit with the Bible's teaching that everyone is blessed? Because the Bible is clear that while there are some people who by God's grace live and die under his blessing, there are also many others who live and die under his curse. In fact, in the version of the Beatitudes in Luke's Gospel, Jesus pronounces woes as well as blessings. Jesus says in the equivalent of this Beatitude, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But he also says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So whatever the mourning or weeping is that Jesus is talking about, it's a mourning or weeping that some people do, but others don't. Another reason we shouldn't assume this beatitude applies to anyone who mourns the loss of a loved one is because the rest of the beatitudes are about our spiritual lives. Jesus began by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. He'll go on to talk about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are pure in heart, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so it would be natural to understand the mourning Jesus is talking about here as a spiritual mourning, as a mourning and weeping over sin which is something that some people do, but many people don't. A final thing that's important to, to remember just by way of introduction is, as I said last week, the Beatitudes uh, very uh, naturally and deliberately uh, flow in a particular order. Each one follows on from the last one. And so if this beatitude, or if the first beatitude, uh, which we looked at last week, is about those who are poor in spirit, if, as we saw, that is about those who realise their spiritual poverty, their spiritual emptiness before God, if it's about those who realise that they have nothing they could bring to the table that could ever impress God, then that won't simply be an intellectual realisation but it will lead to grief, uh, grief both at what sin is and the fact that that sin separates us from God. 
And those who mourn because of that are those who will be comforted. And so with those things in mind, we want to look at this second beatitude under three headings this morning. And firstly, we see the need to mourn over our sin. The need to mourn over our sin. To the average person, the idea that a minister would tell his people that they need to mourn and weep over their sin would seem ridiculous at best, if not psychologically dangerous. Even for the average congregation of churchgoers, perhaps some here today, there, there might be, be someone thinking, is this not a bit morbid? Is this not a bit dreary and introspective? What a depressing topic. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And it's written in such a way that it tells us that it's an ongoing mourning. It's not just a one-off thing around the time of our conversion. Mourning over sin is not something that we can take or leave. And we see that in the Old Testament background to the Beatitudes. In Isaiah 61, there's a prophecy about the coming of Jesus. Jesus himself quotes it in the the synagogue in his hometown, at least the opening words of it. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and so on. And uh, the poor there is the same category, the, the poor in spirit, referred to in the first beatitude. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus quotes those words of Isaiah and he says, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, and that prophecy in Isaiah goes on. In fact, in the very same sentence, it, it tells us that one of the reasons Jesus will come is to comfort all who mourn. Jesus came to comfort all who mourn. For those who, who simply mourn over the death of, of a loved one but, but do not face up to their own sins will, will not know this comfort that Jesus came to bring. And, and so quite simply, if we do not mourn over sin, we won't know the comfort that Jesus came to bring. Mourning over sin is also the, the pattern of the Christian life that we see in the New Testament. We see it, for example, in the Apostle Paul. What does Paul say at the end of Romans 7? He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is mourning over sin. Now occasionally you'll get somebody who says, well, well, Paul in Romans 7, that's Paul. Before he became a Christian, it doesn't describe the ongoing life of the Christian. But then you get to chapter 8 and Paul says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And why do we groan inwardly as Christians? If not, because of the ongoing reality of sin. So we need to mourn over sin. But not just sin in general. Some would say that this mourning is simply mourning over the fact that there are wicked people in the world who oppress others. And certainly that's something that we can mourn over. 
But unless we mourn over our own personal sins, we won't know the comfort that Jesus promises. Nor should we primarily focus on the the legitimate need to focus on the sins of the world, the nation or the church when we come to this beatitude. Uh, Now, we we should mourn over those things. Uh, We see that elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, How we should mourn over the fact that Scotland has a new First Minister who's promised to uh, completely, or at least bring proposals to try and completely decriminalise abortion. uh, To remove any time limit on abortion so that babies could be killed right up until birth. How we should mourn the weakness of the church. In fact, Isaiah 66 tells us that those who love the church will mourn over her and one day will rejoice. There is a place for mourning over the sins of the nation and the sins and weakness of the church. Though too often that can become a replacement for mourning over our own sin. Because it's so much easier to mourn over the sin of others than the sin of ourselves. Even if we include ourselves in the nation or the church, it can easily become a way of of finger pointing at others. It can so easily feed our self-righteousness. But as well as that danger, simply the context here in the Beatitudes, it fits much better to a mourning over our own sin. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is very personal. It's the realisation that we as individuals have nothing to bring to God. It's the realisation that in the words of the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So the mourning that follows is a mourning because we realise our own personal emptiness before God. And not simply our our emptiness, but our sinfulness. That even our best works are as filthy rags before him. And so we mourn and weep. First and foremost because of our own sins. Because we have realised by the Holy Spirit's grace and help that we are poor in spirit. Poverty in spirit leads to mourning over sin. But then secondly today, what mourning over sin looks like. What it looks like. This mourning over sin is primarily an individual mourning or weeping over their own sin. And it is a mourning or a weeping. In other words, it's not just an acknowledgement that you're a sinner. Sometimes people can acknowledge that they are are not perfect. They maybe say, well, to err is human. I know I'm not perfect. Uh, And they maybe accept that they, they haven't perfectly kept God's law. But a mourning over sin is more than that. It's more than, than an intellectual acknowledgement that, that we have fallen short. How do the crowd on the day of Pentecost react when Peter preaches and tells them that they have crucified the Lord of glory? Well, they are cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart. And that sort of cutting is like cutting an onion. It brings tears. It brings tears. 
Uh, and yet at the same time it's true that, that there can be such a thing as crocodile tears. There can be a, a sorrow even over sin that's not sincere. There can be a counterfeit mourning over sin. Or there can be a mourning over sin that's simply due to the consequences that sin has brought on us rather than the fact that that sin is an offence against God. The Puritan Thomas Watson uh, wrote a, a long book on the Beatitudes and he lists some kinds of wrong mourning over sin. And I'll give you four of them. Uh, firstly, he says there's a despairing mourning. Uh, and such was Judas mourning after he betrayed Jesus. In fact, Watson points out that Judas, who is in hell, did more uh, when he was on earth in terms of uh, mourning uh, or at least acknowledging sin than many do nowadays. Judas confessed his sin, uh, which is more than many do. He, he didn't make excuses for it, uh, but he openly acknowledged it. He, he literally said the words, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. In a sense, Judas made restitution. He, he gave back the, the proceeds that he had earned from the crime. He threw, uh, threw back the 30 pieces of silver but that wasn't a mourning that led to repentance. It wasn't a mourning that brought him back to God. So it was a despairing mourning. There's also a hypocritical mourning. Uh, like King Saul who said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. But he also blamed other people. He said he, he did it because he feared the people. And then he asked Samuel, and I think this really shows where his heart is at. He says, honour me before the elders of the people. That was the main thing for him. He doesn't seem that bothered to have lost God's favour, but he couldn't bear to lose the people's favour, uh, to lose his reputation. And there's a hypocritical mourning, which is more concerned about how our sin looks to others than how it looks to God. Thirdly, Watson says there is a forced mourning when tears have to be pumped out by God's judgments. Maybe some of you remember when you had to go to a, a pump to get water. Uh, at my, my granny's house in the yard, there was an old water pump that, that they had to go to, to pump to, to get water back in the day. Uh, but the water would only come out when, when you pumped it. And, and so Cain, for example, he, he only mourns when, when God's judgment comes. He says to God, my punishment is more than I can bear. But that was only mourning because of the punishment, not because of the fact that he had killed his brother. If his sin hadn't been found out, he would have been quite happy. He, he wouldn't have mourned. And again, it wasn't a mourning that, that led to repentance. There were tears, but only when they were pumped by God's judgment. Uh, the, the final kind of wrong mourning is a, a mourning which is only outward. There are people in the Bible who tear their clothes, who put on sackcloth. And sometimes that is an outer symbol of genuine inward grief. But at other times it's just a performance. There can be a, a type of mourning that's 
aimed at convincing others we've changed when we haven't really. But God says to us, tear your hearts and not your garments. So those are four things that mourning over sin isn't. So, so what is mourning over sin? Well, it is free, not forced. In Luke chapter 7, a sinful woman comes to Jesus with tears in her eyes, which are clearly the result of love in her heart. She has tears in her eyes, not because anyone has told her to, but because she has love in her heart because of what Jesus has done for her. And she's come to see her sin for what it truly is. True mourning over sin is free, not forced. True mourning over sin is also more concerned about sin than suffering. Pharaoh asked Moses to take away the plagues, but he wasn't concerned about the plague of sin in his own heart. True gospel mourning is more concerned about the sin itself than about any suffering that may come from it. True mourning is also for specific sins and not just for sin in general so often our, our confession of sin can be can be so general as if someone were to go to the the doctor and say i feel pain uh, but not give any specifics of of where the pain was or how long they had been experiencing it generalities can't bring about a proper diagnosis or true healing True mourning for sin is for specific sins. True gospel mourning also brings us to God. It's not just about feeling sorry for ourselves. It's not just a sense of guilt, but which doesn't bring us any closer to God. Rather, it's like the prodigal son who says, I will arise and go to my father. True mourning brings us to God. Finally, true mourning for sin involves forsaking it. It involves turning from it. Not simply feeling sorry about it, but, but still keeping on doing it anyway. What does God say to his sinful people through the prophet Joel? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Uh, and the end of that verse in Joel chapter 2 is helpful as well. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful. Again, it's a type of mourning that leads us to going to God and not staying away from him. Repentance, as the Shorter Catechism summarises, it involves the sinner both having a true sense of his sin and having an apprehension and awareness of the mercy of God in Christ. Simply having a sense of our sin, but, but having no awareness of the mercy of God in Christ, it will, just, it will just leave us in the far country. It will just leave us feeling, feeling guilt and feeling sorrow, sorrow, but it won't bring us to God. So what mourning over sin looks like? And of course to truly mourn or weep over sin, we must hate it. We must hate sin. We must hate the sins we commit. 
not just the sins that other people commit. In Ezekiel 36, speaking of the days when God would pour out his spirit, so the days in which we're living, God says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and abominations. A sense of loathing, of loathing their own sin is a mark of those who are filled by God's spirit. What mourning over sin looks like. But perhaps you're sitting here today and you know you're a sinner and you acknowledge that your sin is bad but you struggle to hate it. You know that you should hate it. You, you want to hate it even but you struggle to see it as really that bad. You try not to sin but if you're honest you wouldn't say that you mourn over it. And so thirdly today we want to consider how can we see the sinfulness of our sin? How can we see the sinfulness of our sin? There's no doubt we live in a society that is utterly desensitised to sin. Sins that a generation or two ago would barely have been mentioned if mentioned at all are now flaunted and praised. And that sort of atmosphere can militate us against seeing our own sin as all that serious. But Jesus came for those who would mourn over their sin. So how can we see our sin as something to mourn over? Something to be cut to the heart about? Well consider these three things. First think about what sin has done to this world in which we live. We live in a world of mass shootings, a world where even babies and children are killed. We live in a world of terminal diagnosis where a pregnant woman can hear the devastating news that she won't live long enough to see her little baby grow up or or even learn to walk. We live in a, a world where unjust and corrupt leaders walk in the corridors of power where obvious liars are elected instead of those who will tell the truth. And on the day-to-day level, every time we feel pain, every time we feel sad, every time we feel lonely, every time someone hurts us, it's all because of sin. Wherever we look, God's perfect creation has been devastated by sin in our individual lives, in our national lives. That's how destructive sin is. There's nothing that it doesn't affect. And will we not treat sin as serious? Will we not mourn over it? Imagine you you had a a child killed by the next door neighbour's Rottweiler. They were told to put it down, but they, they didn't. How would you feel every time you saw that dog? Knowing what it had done. And yet every time we lose a loved one, ultimately it is because of sin. And will we then go and play around with sin? You wouldn't go and play around with that dog that had, that had mauled a child that you loved. I think of Jesus' tears. Why did Jesus weep at the tomb of Lazarus? Even though he knew in a few moments that Lazarus would rise from the dead and come out of the tomb. So why did he weep? Well surely he wept because of what sin had done to the world he created. 
if you struggle to mourn over your sin. Think of what sin has done to this world and to your own life. And any one of the sins you commit would be enough to plunge a perfect world into chaos and darkness. Any one of our sins would be enough to plunge a perfect world into chaos and darkness. And will we not mourn over them? The second thing to consider if we're struggling to mourn over our sin, and this is the the main one, is to think about the cross. Think about the cross. Think of what our sin cost the Lord Jesus. The God who said, let there be light, couldn't simply say, let there be forgiveness. Boys and girls, have you ever thought about that? God could say at the very beginning, let there be light, and there was light. But God couldn't simply say, let there be forgiveness. Rather, Jesus had to die. Last week in the evening service, one of the challenges we we took from the passage we looked at was to meditate on the cross. And if we we do that, if we think of what he suffered, will we not be struck afresh by the fact that it was our sin that held him there? Will we not hear our own voices calling out among the scoffers? A mourning for sin in light of the cross is something that the last book of the Bible says will mark God's people right up until the second coming. Revelation 1 verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. That wailing is a wailing over sin. It's a quote from Zechariah. Where God says, I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that they shall look on me, on whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So, mourning, weeping, wailing, when does it come? When we look on the one we have pierced. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Is there any sorrow like my sorrow? The fact that we are believers doesn't lessen our obligation to weep. In fact, in a sense, it increases it because of the the love that we have sinned against. Thomas Watson says sins against gospel love are worse in some sense than the sins of demons for they never had an offer of grace like we have had. The demons have not spurned God's love like we do at times. In the book about the cross I recommended last Sunday night, Fred Leakey writes, Lord forgive us for the times we have read about Gethsemane with dry eyes. And if we do not mourn or weep over our sin, or if we do it rarely, surely it is because we do not spend enough time at the cross. If you want help to mourn or weep over sin, go to the cross. The final thing to think about to to spur us to mourn and weep over the fate of the unbeliever 
or the, the final thing to spur us to mourn and weep over sin is the fate of the unbeliever. In Luke's version of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are you who weep now. Because actually the question isn't whether we're going to weep. The question is whether we're going to weep now or whether we're going to weep for all eternity. Those who don't weep over their sins now will weep one day. In that place where Jesus himself said seven times there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God would have been perfectly justified in sending us to hell for committing even one sin. Uh, The fact that he sent Jesus to suffer that torment instead is purely due to his grace. One sin would have damned us for all eternity. And, And will we mess around with it? Will we treat it as a friend? Will we not weep over it? It's one thing to acknowledge our sin. It is another to to weep over it, to see it as horrible. And only the the Holy Spirit can help us do that. But just to conclude this morning, what if we do? What if we do mourn and weep over our sin? Well, the, the, the second part of the Beatitude, we will be comforted. We will be comforted. Because true mourning and weeping over sin will drive us to Jesus. That's how we'll be comforted. It will lead to confession and repentance. It will bring us to the cross where each and every one of those sins can be wiped clean. And in fact even more than that. Because wiping away our sins is only half of what Jesus does for us amazing as that may sound because rather than simply having the slate wiped clean and be given a new start and with it the possibility of messing it all up again we're given the very righteousness of Christ himself Jesus perfect record of obedience becomes ours and it's imputed to us and received by faith alone and so brother or sister in Christ You may not have all the worldly comforts you might like, but you have the true comfort of knowing sins forgiven, a restored relationship with God and the Holy Spirit within you. And one day soon every tear will be wiped away. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen. We close by turning to the very appropriate words of Psalm 38. Psalm 38 words which again speak of mourning and words which by God's grace can help us mourn over our sin even as we sing them. Surely a a, a word like this should, should... it should help us mourn over, over sin, even as we sit here, not, not simply something that we, we think we need to go away and do. So Psalm 38, starting on page 76. It's the first five verses and then the last verse. And verse 4 sums it up. All my wounds grow foul and loathsome, for my folly makes it so. I am bent and bowed down greatly. All day long I mourning go. Um, perhaps someone would say, well, well why, would, why would New Covenant Christians want to sing words like these? Well, because Jesus Christ himself said, blessed are those who mourn. 
So it is a psalm of mourning, but amazingly it's also a psalm of hope. A psalm that brings the very comfort that Jesus promised to those who mourn. Why is it a psalm of comfort and hope? Because it ultimately speaks of the Lord Jesus, who is our comfort and who is our hope. Uh, We'll not sing it, but look at the first two lines of verse 7. Those who love me and companions see my state and stand far off. Does that remind you of anyone? Well, it's a prophecy of Luke 23, 49. And all his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And so the psalm itself reminds us that if we are those who truly mourn over sin, then that sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And as a result, verse 13, we can sing not simply that God saves, but that God himself is our salvation. So Psalm 38, 1-5 and then 13, we'll stand to sing praise.